if you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one under one of the chairs in front of you. You can find Matthew 6 on page 787. And as you turn there, um, I do want to share with you the, the main um, announcement that Ken shared during the town hall, if you were not here uh, at the 10 a.m. hour, because it's cause for celebration, it's cause for further praising God for His uh, goodness to us. Um, we had several obstacles between um, uh, us and closing on 21 Harristown Road, and as of Friday morning, around 10 a.m., when we got an email, um, the last remaining obstacle was cleared out by the Lord, and we are cleared for closing probably in uh, 10 days. So praise God. We, um, we spent some time praying and uh, praising. People just stood up and, and praised God for this during the town hall. We invite you to join with us in that. And, um, you know, as Yogi said, uh, it ain't over. And so um, the, the lady is warming up. She hasn't sung yet. And as you know, if you've, if you've had any legal transactions, especially big ones like a home, um, we'd ask that you'd continue to pray for all the little details that need to happen. But uh, we will have more to share with you certainly next Sunday. But praise God for um, clearing us for closing. Matthew chapter 6. For the past few weeks, we've been walking through the first part of the Lord's Prayer. Um, we notice that there are six petitions in total, and the first three are Godward. They're heaven-directed. We learn that we are invited to call God Father, first of all, which is uh, family language. It's intimate terminology. And that ability is given to us, that access to the throne of heaven is given to us through faith in Jesus. We then are invited to call God Abba Father. And yet, as intimate and familiar as He may be to us as Father, and yet His name is to be hallowed. It's, it's to be set apart, made holy, treated differently than any other name on the face of the earth, in, in, in a category all by itself. And uh, as the king, in, in our recognition of, of Him as the king of all creation, we've said that our hearts become more properly calibrated according to the perfect design of God, calibrated, uh, aligned with the heart of our Father in heaven when we recognize these things to be true of Him. He's worthy of praise. He's the King. His kingdom is to come. His will is to be done. And as we not only recognize these truths, but begin to embrace them, that becomes the source of everything good and beautiful and pleasing and satisfying. That's the first half of the Lord's Prayer we've been looking at over the last three weeks. This morning's phrase regarding daily bread, turns the corner. The father who's the king never neglects the, ch- uh, the needs of his children. He, in fact, invites us to bring our needs to his attention. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Listen carefully. These are God's words. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to 
dig deeply into something that for many of us with a church background is a familiar prayer. Father, as we have prayed, we continue to ask that by your Spirit's work in and among us, that you would make these uh, old familiar words fresh, that their impact upon us would be as if hearing them for the first time and praying them for the first time with faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We start out by talking about bread. It's what we're asking for in this line of the prayer. And we'll note that it's more than food. It starts out just as food. There's nothing terribly deep here. Bread is food and uh, bread is necessary for survival. Bread represents life's necessities, everything we need for survival and thriving. And so if we extend the context of this prayer, we could say that this is a prayer for honeybees and regular rainfall and a prayer against drought and crop-killing diseases. We could say this is a prayer for clothing and shelter and health care and a prayer against unemployment and financial crises and sickness and disease. If we turn to the Bible, um, an early picture of God's care for His people involved bread falling out of the sky. Manna from heaven was provided to God's people as food for their survival for 40 years as they wandered in the desert. And, um, you know, scholars tell us, and signs within the the Gospel of Matthew tell us that um, Matthew, the Gospel writer, was primarily writing about Jesus' life and ministry for a Jewish audience. And I'm absolutely confident that the Jewish listeners to Jesus, as he taught his disciples to pray, as soon as they heard him say, give us today our daily bread, they absolutely would have been thinking about manna falling from heaven. Especially because if you turn back to the book of Exodus, you you find very careful instruction given through Moses to the people that each day in the morning, they're to go out and to gather enough manna uh, for themselves and for their family just for that day, daily bread. And, and not a, a chunk of bread or flake of manna, however you measured it, more than they needed. And, and those who did, worrying that it might not be enough, found that the extra turned, into, um, that turned filthy, that maggots were eating it. Um, it spoiled. No, they were to gather just enough for that day, with one exception, the day before the Sabbath, on which uh, they were supposed to gather two days' worth of food so that on the Lord's day, they didn't have to go out working and gathering for their food. Five days a week, just enough for that day. One more day a week, just enough for the next two. This was a test of faith, of daily dependence on God. There was no pantry. If there was, it was empty. There was no deep freezer filled with meat and frozen goods to just go downstairs in your basement and pull out something to defrost for dinner. Simply the promise that God made that tomorrow, again, I promise there will be enough for you. This is reflected in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. Again, a connection that uh, Jewish listeners would have immediately made to give us this day our daily bread. 
Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Wealth tempts me to think that I don't need God. I've got everything covered. Thank you very much. Life is moving along pretty well. Poverty, on the other hand, tempts me to desperation, to grabbing what is not mine, to taking what I need for survival and thriving. So the proverb wisely prays for just the right balance in between that keeps us dependent on and satisfied by God himself, daily bread. Back to the biblical narrative, to the Israelites looking forward to the promised land, God described it as a land flowing with milk and honey. More food-centric imagery here. God's law instructed His people to celebrate yearly religious feasts, each one requiring the time to travel to Jerusalem and the expense of providing an animal for sacrifice. Uh, But often... The worshipers ate much of the sacrifice. The the feasts throughout the year, don't don't miss the fact that it's a feast. Yes, it's religious, it's worship, it requires sacrifice, but it was feasting. The Passover feast or the Feast of Unleavened Bread involved roasting an entire animal, usually a lamb, could have been a goat, to feed the entire family. And keep in mind, this was not something the average person would do very often at all. Kill a fattened animal and um, have such a luxurious meal, rich, fattening meal for all to enjoy. When we turn to the prophets, we find visions of the coming kingdom. Uh, For example, from Isaiah chapter 25, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. That's a dinner party I want to get invited to. And notice that uh, each part, food and drink, is repeated as if to emphasize the richness, the luxuriousness, uh, luxuriousness, is that a word? Of the coming kingdom of God. More food-centric imagery here. The prophet Isaiah includes this, we could call it a gospel invitation in the Old Testament. Chapter 55, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. It's free. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Last week, we talked about what the coming of God's kingdom involved. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And with this quick survey of the Old Testament narrative, we could very well make the case that the symbol for the coming kingdom of God that is most appropriate is a feast, a party. You know, here at GRC, I think we know um, as well as anyone, maybe better than most, um, that to have a good party, you need some good food. We eat well here at GRC. I don't know if you knew that. Um, and let me tell you a story uh, from back when Cedar met my family uh, almost 25 years ago. She still finds it humorous to this day, this habit of my family. 
Uh, for example, back in the day when our kids were little, we might ask my parents to come up from Edison to watch the kids um, when we got invited to a wedding. And when we, when we got home at night, there were no questions about the bride's dress or the cake or the music or the dancing. There were questions about what did you have for appetizers? How was the food? What did you sit down to in terms of the meal? That was what they wanted to know. Uh, my grandmother uh, didn't speak too much English, but Cedar could pick this up pretty easily. She would relive last year's family feast for whatever occasion it was by counting out each of the 10 courses at the Chinese banquet that streamed out of the kitchen in order. Because to my grandmother, the feasting was not about the music, the celebration, the decoration, the great conversation or the laughter. It was about the food. And I think we could say the biblical pattern isn't all that different. The British theologian Tom Wright says this, Jesus was celebrating the strange presence of God's kingdom and the prayer he gave his followers was a prayer for the complete fulfillment of that kingdom, for God's people to be rescued from hunger, guilt, and fear. Give us this day our daily bread means in this setting. Let the party continue. I know this may sound a bit irreverent to some of you, but when I read Tom Wright saying this about the Lord's Prayer, I can't help uh, finding a bit of a striking resemblance with what you'd hear at Mardi Gras, which is, Laissez les bons temps rouler. Let the good times roll. Except here in a biblically reinforced, Christ-exalting, kingdom of God feasting kind of way. Bread is more than food in the Bible. It points us to feasting. Uh, The second thing we notice is that give us this day our daily bread is really a prayer of desire. If you, um, you know, Abraham Maslow had this hierarchy of needs in this pyramid, um, and uh, at least towards the bottom, uh, the most important was the need for survival. And survival, of course, requires food and water. Uh, to sustain us physically. It's the most basic of all desires. But later in this chapter, chapter uh, 6 of Matthew, Jesus teaches his disciples something that seems to tone down that prayer of desire. He says in chapter 6, verses 31 and and, and 32, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans, the, the word is the nations, the Gentiles, for the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Which is it? Prayer of desire, asking for what we need, or don't worry about it. God knows what you need. I've been saying every week that this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, especially the first half that we've already looked at, recalibrates our hearts to the perfect heart of our Father. And if we put these pieces together, this line give us this day our daily bread submits our desires to God so that they can be corrected, straightened out, aligned with His perfect will for us. So Jesus is saying, don't worry, but still express your desire. Share your needs with the Father. That reminds me of um, a... uh, a parental approach we've always taken with our kids, again, especially when they were little, and, and something we were pretty firm about. 
we would say, tell us what you want. Use your words, but no whining. No whining. Whining was not allowed. Um, express your desire. But you don't need to add that the agita, the angst, you know, the complaining and the groaning and the, the fear of, of what the consequences. Tell us what you want, but no whining. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at when we put together chapter 6, verse 11, give us today our daily bread. And chapter 6, verse 31, don't worry. The Father knows what you need. God is inviting us to express our desire to Him with great honesty. Tell me what you want, but don't worry. I already know what you most need. That kind of idea, expressing your desire to God in prayer, requires a good dose of honesty, doesn't it? Realism. Telling it like it is. Uh, Especially if your prayer of desire really means, God, I want more money. I want sex, drugs, and rock and roll all the time. I want amazing success, lasting fame, the adoration of my peers. Because if that's your prayer of desire and you're honest before God, do you think this perfect Father will simply agree with you and give you what He knows will consume you and perhaps even destroy you? What does He do instead? The the Book of Common Prayer was written in the mid-1500s in order to structure um, the worship services of the Church of England. And one of the prayers for a communion service goes like this. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are known, all desire are, are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. That's a bold prayer. It's a bold acknowledgement that, yes, God knows your every secret. God knows every desire in your heart before it's even been expressed. Here's the question I want you to ask yourself. Do you see that truth about an all-knowing God as a threat? Do you see it as God walking around looking to get you? He's going to catch you. He's going to expose you. Is that something to shrink back from, to keep secrets from God, to, to not approach Him in prayer lest you get struck by lightning? Or, in great contrast, do you see God's knowledge of your every desire as a promise that though your heart's desires are messed up, they're corrupted, they're wrongly directed, God the Father who loves you perfectly promises to give you far more than you ever dreamed. God, you know my every desire and yet you want something greater for me. You want to transform my desire. You want to elevate my desire. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Food that spoils. That's the desires of our hearts that are so childish and short-sighted the, the, the flash-in-the-pan kind of um, experience or pleasure or attainment. Um, we just watched an old movie, uh, old home movie at home, home video. Um, 
and uh, were marveling at our then nine-month-old opening his first ever Christmas present. And you, if you have a child or, an, or you're, you're, uh, you have a niece or a nephew or a grandchild or a friend, you, you've seen this before. Um, more fascinated by the crinkly wrapping paper than the shiny new truck that was his first ever truck. Food that spoils is, um, are those petty little desires that distract you from real treasure. Don't work for food that spoils, Jesus says. Work for food, long for food that endures to eternity that will fully and finally satisfy you, body and soul. That leads us to uh, the most important context for bread in all the Bible, the bread of life. We already saw how the Old Testament uses bread and feasting as symbols of the coming of God's kingdom. When we turn to the New Testament, we find nothing is different, perfectly consistent. And so Jesus' first miracle, for example, in John chapter 2 is at the wedding at Cana. They run out of wine. And Jesus' mother, it's sort of a hilarious exchange, Jesus' mother comes over to him and says, they ran out. And he basically tells her, none of my business. (laughs) My time has not yet come. And she insists. She's the mama. He does what she says. And what does he do in his first miracle? He transforms vast amounts of water available for washing, ceremonial cleansing, and transforms them into the best vintage possible. Jesus was not against partying. Uh, Now, don't take that for any license for excess, okay? But we can't get past the fact that the reason they were out of wine was because they drunk it all. It was gone, and Jesus makes more. The feasting continues. Later, he's accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he is enjoying time with his disciples. They, They throw parties. They celebrate. You know, um, he tells stories of a lost son that his enemies are thinking deserve to be punished, banished, and Jesus is telling the story that it was another occasion to throw a big party because my son who was lost has now been found, story of the prodigal son. He fed 5,000 of his disciples with bread and a little bit of fish, John chapter 6, and then on the night he was betrayed, He instituted for His disciples and for all who would follow after, us included, a sacramental meal to regularly celebrate. And finally, if we turn to the very end of the Bible, we find in the book of Revelation, especially in chapter 19, this picture of the wedding feast of the Lamb, who is Jesus the bridegroom, that will end all of history. The end, and they lived happily ever after, is a wedding party filled with food and drink. This prayer is very earthy. Yes, there's all kinds of symbolism for bread. Yes, it represents something um, more than just food, but we can't skip over the fact that bread is what is necessary materially, physically, for our earthly survival and thriving. We can't separate that stuff from the spiritual promises of the gospel because Jesus said to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Glory, this picture of the new heavens and the new earth, right? The Bible doesn't talk about heaven all by itself, just heaven. 
kind of like floating out there in the clouds. You know, we're going to go there one day. No, the Bible talks about the new heavens and the new earth and being the most important word there. Two dimensions of reality becoming one. No separation. We, we can't see with full spiritual eyesight yet the heavenly reality. We glimpse it at times through the Spirit. We can see the earthly reality. One day they'll be made one. And in glory, in the final chapter of God's history, with the new Jerusalem, the redeemed city of God coming down where God will dwell with his people and we shall see him face to face, bread prayed for today will become reality. Because God promises that the last day will fully provide freedom from fear of hunger and death from any unsatisfied needs, we will be satisfied body and soul, utterly, absolutely satisfied because we will be in the very presence of God and we will have everything we long for, desire, need, as it was always supposed to be. So how do you get invited to the feast to end all feasts? Back to John chapter 6. After he feeds the 5,000, Jesus tells us, chapter 6, verse 35, he boldly declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Then he says it again a few verses later, down in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And he had already said earlier in John chapter 4, when he met the Samaritan woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water that we're pulling out of the ground will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Are you getting the picture? How do you get invited to the feast to end all feasts? How do you find satisfaction? Abundance. How do you access the rich, overabundant blessings of God's kingdom and satisfy your deepest hunger and quench your otherwise unquenchable thirst? All answered in the same way. You come to Jesus and you see that he is all that you need. You come to Jesus and you realize that your prayer for daily bread, yes, involved the meal on the table and the clothes on your back and the roof over your head, but ultimately pointed forward to the day when Jesus would be everything that you need, your full satisfaction, your ultimate delight. How do you get invited to the feast and all feasts? You believe in Him. You declare what He stated boldly. I am the bread of life. That's a crazy statement, unless it's true. You get invited by believing that this is the path of life. You find your satisfaction in His death for you in payment of your sins, and you find satisfaction in His rising to new life ahead of you, that sin and death might be done away with, and that newness of life might be your promised inheritance. That transforms prayer from a shopping list, from a honeydew, divine honeydew list, into delight.
into rich relationship. That transforms greed into grace. Greed, I need you to do more, God. I need this situation resolved. I I want more of whatever, money, fame, acclaim. Transforms it into wonder, grace. You are giving me what? You're offering me the life of your own son? I don't deserve that. But Abba Father, I embrace everything you long for me to enjoy. Last thought as we close. You know, uh, maybe you've had this thought um, as we've celebrated the Lord's Supper that the bread of the sacrament, a holy sacrament, seems strikingly similar to the bread you toasted for breakfast. Seems strikingly similar and ordinary like the bread you mopped up that great sauce with at dinner time last night. Because it is. You know, um, when people ask me, I, I enjoy giving this answer. People say, where do we get the oil for our healing services? The next one's on Easter Sunday, by the way, between services. I, I take great delight in answering that question. It is ShopRite Extra Virgin Olive Oil, and it's in a little vial on, on my bookshelf, just about this big. It's probably getting stale. Um, I, I enjoy telling people, you know, communion bread is from the local grocery store. Um, baked within the last, you know, 24 hours. I, I, I tell people, you know, communion wine, the wine of the Holy Sacrament, it sits in a box in the office fridge labeled Franzia. <laughs> it's a Cab Merlot blend. That's all it is. There's nothing special about the elements of the sacrament. But rather than take that data and treat the Lord's Supper as just another ordinary meal because it's like the bread I ate or it's like the wine I drank, the gospel's effect should be to turn that around 180 degrees to remind you that the very ordinary bread you toasted and put some jam on, the very ordinary bread with which you mopped up that great sauce you cooked up has also been provided by your perfect Father in heaven in His care for His children. The gospel's effect should be to make the mundane a bit more sacred, not to take the sacred and make it mundane. To realize all of this It's just a a hint, a glimpse, a pointer, a down payment on the fullness of God's kingdom blessings that He wants to overabundantly shower me with. Because ultimately, our desire for daily bread is the greatest desire that God has created us with, which is a desire for Himself, to trust in the one, the same one who taught His disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread is the one who provided his own flesh, which he called bread for the life of the world. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel at your care for us. We marvel at your perfect provision of our every need. Lord, and to the extent that there are needs unmet around us, in our, uh, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our very own lives, Father, Strengthen us to do something about it, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to give homes to uh, the parentless children, Uh, and at the same time, Lord, whet our appetites for 
the fulfillment of every promise, Lord, the reversal of everything gone wrong, the making right of all that you long for your children to enjoy at your hand. Until that day, Father, we will pray for daily bread. And we do so right now using these words that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.